John 6, 1 through 21. You just prayed that the Lord would show you Christ. See Him now in His Word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. He got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is by far one of the most famous accounts of Jesus in all the scriptures and because of that it's somewhat problematic familiarity breeds contempt no one would admit to contempting the word of God here but I guess we could say even more accurately with a text like this familiarity breeds complacency yeah I get it 5,000 people fed Jesus. I remember the story. I got the flannel graph as a kid. I, I know, yes, he walks on the water. That's really cool. And, and there's this sense in which we've lost our, our wonder. We've lost our awe. I, I don't really know all the reasons why that's so. I think that part of it is because we live 
in a culture in which our senses have been inundated by the artificial. Like, how much CGI can we see in movies uh, before we get bored with real life? Or if you even think of just the individuals that seem to exercise, you know, these uh, amazing gifts all the way from like Harry Houdini back in the day to someone like a David Blaine or a Justin Willman even in our own day. These, these guys can do such amazing things and, and we know that there's a gimmick behind it, that there was something that, uh, that enabled it and so we see it and we're like, oh, that was really cool, but it doesn't change your life at all. You're just thinking like, oh, well, I know there was some reason behind that thing. There's a generation of us that actually grew up watching uh, this show uh, called The Masked Magician, in which like, the guy would actually reveal how all these tricks were done. And it's kind of like, yeah, we know that there's a human explanation behind it. And you know what a lot of people have done, even with these accounts? Some of us are just bored with it because we're overstimulated, but some people have actually tried to explain how these things humanly happened. I am not kidding. Like, the feeding of the 5,000. There are actual like journal articles out there and academic journals of saying Jesus was wearing a flowing robe. There was a cave behind him. They hid all the food in the as he was passing it out of the one basket. They were filling it in from the bottom. <laughs> I think that would be a miracle to pull off, frankly. <laughs> Another one. I'm not kidding. This is this is classic uh, liberal theology. Uh, some say that the miracle occurred in the people's hearts. Because when that little boy pulled out his lunch, everyone else pulled out their lunch and they shared. (laughs) The walking on the water. Natural explanation? Sandbar. In fact, another account that I read, again, I think this one's almost more miraculous, is that Jesus was standing on well-positioned rocks. Now, I've stood on rocks in the ocean before, and it's not that sure a footing. For him to do that in a storm is pretty impressive, even in its own right. But despite all the human explanations, we need to remember that something amazing was happening here. And what John is going to do is us in to the experience. And I need you, yeah, I need you to borrow on your you probably won't believe this, but I really think this will help. I need you to borrow heavily from your imagination today. The text is inviting you to see. It's calling you truly. It's calling you truly to be stunned. Like if you already want to know what the application is, it is truly to be stunned at Jesus' power over nature. If I were to give the message a title, um, I think I'd call it The Lord Over the Limits. But I also have alternate titles if you like them better. (laughs) The Ruler Over Nature, The Master Over Matter. It's all the same. Whatever you think is just endemic to being human, like just the natural limits that we have, Jesus 
in both of these accounts is going to trample all over those. He will lord over human limitations. Thus far in the book of John, we've actually seen him primarily uh, exercising power over nurture, not really nature. What I mean by that is he's kind of been like a physician par excellence. He's been the guy that can heal the child that's about to die. He's been uh, the guy that can actually make a lame man walk. And you were just reading through John, you'd be like, yeah, this guy's like some kind of shaman. He's some kind of witch doctor. He's got some kind of divine power over the body. But does he have power over anything beyond that? Here's our first introduction to that. Jesus isn't lording over nurture here. He's lording over nature, that which uh, most humans or any human would not have any control or access, the, the, the natural limitations that are placed upon us. And the significance of what he does here isn't unpacked fully until the verses to come, but I can't make this a three-hour message. So we're just going to stick with the first 21 verses and be stunned at first at who Jesus is, and then we'll study further in weeks to come why this matters. But you need to be stunned. The first event that we see here from verses 1 to 15 shows how Jesus lords over the human limitation of supply. There's a theme. It's supply, that which we need, bread, 1 to 15. And then in 16 to 21, you'll see how Jesus lords over the human limitation of safety, those things which threaten us. Safety, supply, pretty easy to follow. That being said, we look at the setting for this first event. You notice that Jesus has gone away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or otherwise called the Sea of Tiberias, because that was the largest city on the sea. It's an interesting uh, lake if you were to look at it in the little map in the back of your Bible. Uh, It's not really a sea as we would normally think of it, but it was a large body of water for them. About 12 miles long, about 5 miles wide at its widest point. Um, Point is, it's a pretty big body of water, and when you're on it, and in the middle especially, it would seem like the sea. You could get lost in it for sure. And so Jesus is ministering on the other side of the sea. This, is, um, this would have been, if we're looking at a, a map here, uh, this would have been the, the eastern side of things. So he's on the eastern side of the shore. He's doing some ministry. Whatever's going on, it says in verse 2 that a large crowd is following him. And there's an interesting detail here that are following him because, surprise, surprise, they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. That's why they want Jesus. They love the fact that this guy does provide some kind of victory over the things that defeat them physically. Who wouldn't want to follow a guy like this? So they're enamored with his miracles over the the human body. And there's no need to criticize them for that. Any who have felt the limits of aging, the aches and pains of life, Any who have seen family members struggle in the face of of cancer or mental illness or heart problems. I mean, like these things are like, wow, yes, these are bad. And Jesus can fix them. And so they, they want him. And that's not a problem, but it does show what they're most enamored with. And so what does he do? He, he takes advantage of the topography of the area because he's got so many people following him 
that he decides to put himself in a position where he can teach and be heard. You notice in verse 3, it says, he went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the, the mountain here, more than likely, since he's on the, the east side of the lake, is the Golan Heights. You could look that up today on Wikipedia. It is a terrain. It's, it's pretty high. And so he goes and he gets the natural advantage so that he can actually teach in a way that everyone can hear him. And he is intentionally teaching. It says that he sat down with his disciples. Now, for most of you, you're like, oh, he must have been tired and just taking a break. But you need to understand that sitting was the, the position of uh, the ancient rabbi. Uh, we even kind of borrow from that terminology in our own day when we say that someone has uh, taken the chair uh, of a department at a local university. Uh, we mean that they, they sit in the position of teaching authority over that particular institution. Psalm 1, another example of this. You remember when he's saying who the happy person is? Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly right? Nor stands in the way of sinners, nor what? Sits in the seat of scorners. That's Hebrew parallelism at its finest. Sitting in the seat of the scorners is the same thing as walking in the way of the wicked or learning from those who are foolish. Don't do it. So Jesus, he takes his seat. He's going to teach, but here's the fascinating thing. Even though this miracle is the only one outside of the resurrection recorded in all four gospels, John doesn't mention his teaching here. He totally skips right over it. Mark and Luke and Matthew will actually talk a little bit more about his teaching and explain that. John's not interested at all in the teaching in the sermon. He's, I mean, in this event, he's going to focus on the teaching after. What he wants you to see is the miracle. So here's the setup. You've got Jesus, his disciples. He's trying to teach, and, and this invites a problem. It's a problem for them. It wouldn't be a problem that much for us. The problem is that there's so many people, Jesus knows that if they're going to listen to him, he's going to need to feed them so that he can continue his teaching ministry. Now, I'll admit, friends, I've racked my brain over this for long. I heard this this week because I kept thinking, why did he have to do that? I heard this uh, quote from um, this lady. I was like 22 years old. You know, some anecdotes just stick out to you. I remember her saying this, and it forever has stuck with me, and I think it's influenced me more than it should. Are you ready for it? A failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. Now, that's just me. You have 5,000 people out there, 20,000 people out there, however many. Um, you should have brought your own lunch. That's not my responsibility. But Jesus is doing something intentional here. By exercising responsibility for the discipling community, he is inviting them into his leadership presence. He is inviting them to be, in this moment, a part of his merry little band. And any rabbi in the first century would have been responsible for providing for his learners, his followers. Resources that they would set up. They had patrons, they had sponsors, uh, they would talk to people who would give them the resources that they would need so that these people could just continue uh, this life university, if you will. And Jesus is saying, okay, tuition paid, we're going to take responsibility for these guys, we're not going to send them elsewhere, I want to teach them. And so that means we need to feed them. Now, what's fascinating is that even though, like, he sat down on the mountain, 
and we want to get to like how he's going to feed these folks, John introduces one little detail that could seem like nothing to you, like no big deal, like he was just trying to get his word count up. But verse 4 introduces something that you need to pay attention to, that you need to grab onto if you're going to get it. It kind of reminds me of a detective novel. You know, there's a clue or something that's given earlier in the book that's going to play a huge role later on. But John's not writing a detective novel. He's not trying to, like, trick you and do the odd day. I want to tell you something about See this. And friends, this is why, if, especially if you're a guest here today, I want to tell you something about our church. We believe in plenary verbal inspiration. That is, every word of God is inspired. Not just the idea, but the words themselves. This detail in verse 4 is inspired by God. He wants you to know as you're reading this text, look at it, that it was Passover. It was around the time of Passover. Now, why, why does that matter? It says Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Although it may seem superfluous to you, it would have struck a chord with many an original reader that was familiar with uh, Jewish customs and laws. This rich annual celebration I've mentioned to you before was something like July 4th for us here in the United States, but on steroids. And the reason why I say that is because, like, we've got July 4th coming up in a few weeks, and I doubt you've thought about it very much. Normally, you think about it when you go to Target or Walmart and you see all the paraphernalia or some kind of, like, in the front, and you're like, oh, man, it's July 4th this week. And then you're going to get ready for some kind of barbecue or whatever on that day. Maybe go see some fireworks. For the, most of us, like July the 4th at best is a 36-hour event. I don't even know of any major like, you know, man, aren't you so glad that they signed the Declaration of Independence? You know, there's no testimonies about, you know, your appreciation for the United States. It's just a day off for most of us. But for Jewish people, it's not just July 4th. See, we actually have here in the United States this kind of tendency to separate church and state. You need to get something about Jewish culture. They put them together. So the significance that you would give to something like Easter or Christmas, they would give to national holidays as well because they were one and the same. So Passover for them is a big deal. It not only had spiritual implications, but it also had national implications. Do you remember what it was celebrating? Passover celebrated that time that God killed events, that God came from the nation of Egypt and made them their own. There was a, a whole heap of miraculous events that God did to make them his own people. And so when they celebrate Passover under the captivity of Rome, they're looking forward to a day when they'll be delivered again. They want God to show up on the scene and, and do what he did the last time, provide bread for them when they need it, to destroy their enemies in the sea, uh, to, to abolish any threat. I mean, like, that is Passover. And I would say that John is not accidental in his bringing this up. So keep it in mind, it's Passover. That's your setting. But in 5 through 9, there's something interesting happens. It's what I'll call a setup. Jesus is going to set up the miracle to come. He doesn't just dive right into it. He actually presents the problem to the men around him so that they will feel the weight of this. He wants his disciples, he's provoking them to a deeper appreciation of who he really is. So, you've got to feed to notice how people, he's going to be a good host to his followers. And I want you to, to notice how, though, he handles it. 
It says in verse 5, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Notice that he makes it Philip's problem. I like verse 6 because it says, he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Friends, Jesus wasn't really scurrying around wondering how to feed these people. He knew exactly what he was going to do, but he intentionally wants the the people, in this case, Philip, to fill the problem. And I always wonder, like, uh, why Philip? This is the only gospel account that gives us this detail. I think it's because, one, Philip was from Bethesda, and they're not far from there. Maybe he has some human contacts. I think it's also, this is just the cool thing about the book of John, it lets you in on the disciples' personalities. They're not so flat. Uh, Philip is like the bean counter, like, he, he's, he's your statistician. He's, he's a precise kind of guy, precision, and you see that uh, he could engineer his way, typically, you know, out of a problem. He's, he's all about precision, and you see that betrayed in his response. Uh, look at verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. I mean, he's done the math. I, 200 denarii, let's just do some quick math. Okay, denarii, you look at the little footnote in your Bible, it says it's a day's wages, so 200 days wages. We're talking 6.7 months of income, you know, generally speaking. Uh, take the median income just for this zip code, 100,000, divide that by two. All right, we're talking like $50,000. He's saying $50,000. If we had 50,000, we still wouldn't be able to get all these people a bite. Like, he's done the math. And he's like, it's not going to work. So Philip's pessimism, like pessimistic, you know, it's a problem. He just, he doesn't see a way forward. But there's another guy who's overhearing, and I like this one too. His name's Andrew. Andrew's more relational. He has a network already. He's been out among the people to see, okay, well, what? Who are already here? And we see that his solution isn't very sufficient either. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? (laughs) All he can come up with with his networking ability is a little kid with five uh, pieces of poorly made pita and two pickled fish fillets. I'm not making that up. Like, that's what it was. It was poorly made barley pita. And more than likely, it wasn't just raw fish sitting in a basket. It's probably pickled fish fillets. It sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Again, verbal inspiration, friends, verbal inspiration. This is the only account in which it is mentioned that these, are, these pieces of bread are made of barley. Say, so who gives a rip? The Jesus did. Because interestingly, it conveys the very meagerness of these resources. Barley was the lowest form of all bread in the ancient Near Eastern world. One scholar says it this way, barley was a common food for the poor, and here I'm quoting, it's lower gluten content, lower extraction rate, less desirable taste, and indigestibility rendered it the staple of the poor in Roman times. Here's a neat little fact. The Mishnah talks about uh, an offering that a woman would bring if she had committed adultery. And she was supposed to bring a bread offering, but the Mishnah qualifies it by saying that it should be barley, the food of beasts, 
For the woman's sin was the sin of a beast. Barley is the bread of the poor. It's not just that this guy has a high-quality lunch. He has like the bottom of the barrel kind of a lunch. I mean, this is the stuff that you would find in the back hallway of the grocery clearance by the bathrooms. You know what I'm talking about? The stuff they're trying to get rid of. That's what he's got. And it's this very thing. It's like, all right, uh, we don't have it. And Andrew recognizes. He says, what are they for so many? Uh, Like, Jesus is letting them feel the weight of this problem. He wants to invite them in to the situation. And why? Why does he do this? Friends, he does it because it heightens our sense of need. He wants you to understand and feel real-world limitations. It's so hard for us because the greatest problem that we have, no offense to anyone here, but the greatest problem that most Americans have is losing weight, not finding food. So you hear this and you're like, it's not a big deal. But I think what the text would invite us to do then is to relive any kind of human limitation. I mean, just think for a moment, if Jesus is the guy that can meet real human need, think of real human needs for a second. World hunger, global poverty, our own finitude, failures of living in a fallen world. I mean, we know that this world is cursed. We do not have things that we need. We are weak. We are frail. We need sustenance. We need longing. We need resources. I mean, if you just look at the global scene, not just in this room, but you look at the global scene, one asked it this way, aren't there more mouths than bread? Aren't there more wounds than physicians? Aren't there more who need the truth than those who tell it? Aren't there more churches asleep than churches afire? I mean, if you think about it, there's limitations and need all around us. But what Jesus does here is invites them into the concrete limitations of that which is essential for life, bread, food. And he set it up kind of like a tea uh, on, a, on the, the opening of a fairway. Like he's, he's, he's got the ball perfectly set up for him to be able to knock this thing 350 yards. I mean, like this is going to be not even that, a hole in one. Watch them come through. They don't know what to do, and there's a supernatural solution in verses 10 to 13. And in these verses that we read a few moments ago, Jesus, like, Jesus is the boss. Like, he just starts ordering people around. There's no more questions. Now it's only commands. Notice, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, and here's the fascinating thing. If you're reading this for the first time, I know it's hard for you because you've read it 200 times, but if you're reading this for the first time, you actually don't know how many people there are yet. That hasn't been disclosed. All you know is just a whole mass of people. It says huge crowd, huge crowd. You don't know. It's interesting, and I'm only doing this for you detail-oriented folks. And it notes, have the people sit down. That's the Greek word anthropos. But then it notes how many men there were. The men, the word for men is aner, from which we get andros or androgyny, male, biological males. I'll clarify that for this culture. Biological males, there's a word for that. 
And it is here. It says, the men, the biological males, sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, you already are aware that there's a whole bunch of other people here, but just the men, just the heads of households, there's 5,000. Uh, Matthew makes this especially clear. It says 5,000 beside the women and the children. Friends, most scholars would conservatively estimate that there are at least 20,000 people here. And what does he have to work with? Do the math. Five trashy pieces of barley bread and two pickled fish fillets. And what does he do? Verse 11, he took the loaves and when he had given thanks, as all Jewish people would do, they would thank God for the bread that had been given them. It says it so simply. He distributed them to those who were seated. And that's all it says. We distributed. And here's the mind-blowing fact number one. Uh, so also the fish, and look at that last phrase, as much as they wanted. I don't know how this went down, but when I read the other gospel accounts, it seems that he was handing the food to the disciples who were handing the food to the people. But whatever's going on in that little basket that that kid had, it just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. And after everybody gets bread, as much bread as they want, he then repeats the insane process for 20,000 people. Who knows how long this took? For 20,000 people to have enough fish that they wanted. Bread and fish. And the text emphasizes that they were fully satisfied. I mean, look at verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill. I mean, this is an all-you-can-eat buffet. Where did those go, by the way? Man, when I was growing up, there was buffets all over the place. I don't ever see them anymore. You know that feeling? I mean, that buffet feeling, especially like a Chinese buffet, where you just eat so much, you're like sick afterward? 20,000 people feeling like we do at a Chinese buffet from five measly pieces of bread and two pickled fillets of fish. This, this is it's truly stunning, and as if it wasn't stunning enough because the food's just being distributed. You don't really know how much has been produced here by mass. This is mind-blowing. Jesus produces the exact amount of excess needed to have the leftovers that he wanted to have. So this is what it says in verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Now, friends, uh, this could be a good lesson on being frugal. Uh, children at the Harris house, that's why we put things as leftovers in the refrigerator as much as you complain about that. No, but that's, I don't think that's the main lesson. I actually think that Jesus is doing more here than teaching us frugality. Notice the precision with which he um, like garners these leftovers. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Uh, there's no leftover fish, 12 precisely. Now, I don't think pickled fish would last too long, but at least the bread, you get 12 precisely. Now, uh, for those of you who have been in church a while, why do you think that there are 12? <laughs> Twelve disciples, well, that's part of it. Twelve disciples, why did Jesus ever pick them? Because there are twelve tribes of Israel. What is Jesus conveying in this? That he is fully sufficient for the entire nation of Israel. What season was it? 
Passover. What does, what does Jesus do? He produces bread out of nowhere, fully providing for the people. Here, okay, here's the inventory. You ready? Just little notes of review. One, they're sitting out in the wilderness. Two, they have full bellies. Three, this has been accompanied by the sight of 12 baskets of miraculously heaven-sent bread. For you, you ready? Four, it's Passover season. All right, question for you. You ready? What do you think they're thinking? What's on their minds? It is nothing other than the miraculous provision of Yahweh during the Exodus. We heard it read to us earlier from Exodus chapter 16. There, the miraculous provision of the people of God was proof that He was their Lord, that He owned them and that He would care for them. And remember, Yahweh commanded the people. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it again for you in verse 12 of Exodus 16. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God when I provide for you in this miraculous way. Which leads us to the assessment. Now, I just did an assessment for you, but they were doing their own mental calculation and you see that in verses 14 to 15. John is careful to rinse this line of thinking did lead the people to think of Yahweh's divine deliverance. And particularly in Jesus, they felt that they had found the prophet who is coming to the world. Do you see that there in verse 14? And notice verse 15. Don't let that one get lost on you. The prophet who had come into the world who should also be made king. The divine prophet, the divine king. Now, um, admittedly, when you see verse 14 and you think of the prophet that has come into the world, that is not a title of the Messiah of God's chosen one that you would normally think of. But uh, just like, can I give you just, I don't know, 90 seconds worth of Jewish history for a second? Uh, when they were expecting God to come and rescue them, their expectations were deep and wide. When I say that they're deep, I meant that they really did think that, that God's chosen deliverer would come at any moment. They never gave up hope on that. I know that in this church, I'll give you a quick example, there's people all over the, um, the eschatological expectation spectrum. Uh, most of our elders are uh, pre-millennial, pre-tribulational, which means that we think that Jesus will come before a time of seven-year tribulation. There are other people in the church who are amillennial. They think that Jesus is just going to come back at some point, and then he'll rule and reign. Point is, those of us who grew up in more pre-millennial, pre-tribulational backgrounds, we have a tendency to like look for the signs of the times more than most people do. And so like, you're scouts the Left Behind movies, and we're re- Jesus is coming. And so like you're scouring the headlines and you're like, oh, it's the mark of the beast. I swear that COVID is going to be the mark of the beast, you know, and, and just there's a lot of excitement there. I would think that the Jewish people are more like that. They're not saying, oh, he's going to come back someday. I mean, they were thinking any moment he's going to come. It's deep. But here's the thing that you may not get. It's wide. Their expectations of what this would look like were all over the map. Think about it. There were all kinds of, of prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, there was, you know, the, the one of, like, the servant of God, 
you know, like Isaiah 52, there's going to be a suffering servant. Well, that's a messianic hero kind of expectation. There was the son of David. There was going to be this Davidic king that would come, and there's expectation of that. So some were looking for a Davidic king. Deuteronomy 18, we read this several weeks ago, chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, talking about a prophet who would come like Moses. There's a whole group of people looking for a prophet. Some people, nations for the different hero figures, most of them thought that it was just different designations for the one. That's what this group is. Deuteronomy 18 promised that there would be a prophet who would be divinely enabled by God who would come and he would be a second deliverer for the people. Just as Moses was the leader of the first exodus, the new prophet would come, be divinely enabled by God, he would lead them into a second exodus and he wouldn't just be a prophet. In their case, they thought he would also be a king, which says that Jesus is watching them. He's seeing how this is unfolding and like in their minds, they're thinking like, they, they can see Jesus' face on the new coin. They could see him sitting on the Roman throne. I mean, he can hear the conversations like, this is the one, this is the king. And like, he hears the conversations like, let's make him king. I mean, it's ravenous. I don't know if you've ever seen like, a frenzied group of people or if you've ever watched like, a mob take over something. Like, that's exactly what's happening here to the point that they do understand him to be some kind of Achilles divine prophet, some kind of hero, but Jesus, this is interesting, do not forget it, please. He runs away from them. He's like, nope, nope, nope. He backs off, and it says that he goes further into the mountain. I don't know what he, where he goes, how he does it, but he escapes the crowd. The other gospel writers say that he just spends this time in prayer, but what we've seen here is one who exercises lordship over the human limitation of supply. He is the boss. He is the master. He is the ruler over all nature. He is the master over matter. He is the lord over human limits. But the story doesn't end here. It doesn't end. Most of us would think, okay, well, that's a wrap. Let's go on to the next one. But no, it's the same day and three of the four gospel writers continue the story with the walking on the water. There's something else going on, and I want you to notice it in verse 16. You see this second exercise of Jesus' lordship over the limits. Notice the scariness of the situation in the first uh, four verses. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea had become rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Um, friends, Again, imagination. Are you ready to engage it? This is terrifying for a first century reader. I, I say it for several reasons. Of Jesus, and uh, you just have uh, this seemingly banal detail that Jesus and is separated from them. These guys, a lot of them are experienced fishermen. They get in on their 15 to 20 foot like rowboat equivalent. They've actually found one of these, by the way, 
in a muddy embankment on the Sea of Galilee and unearthed it recently. This wasn't your traditional sailboat. The boat says that they're rowing. And what they're going to do, let's get back to our little map over here. They're going to go from the east side to the west side to Capernaum. Capernaum's up here. They're probably up here. They're going to cut off the distance and go straight across. They've got about a five to six mile row. Now, I'm not a rower. I have zero idea how long that would take. But they go on this journey. And it's, it's evening, so it's like it's dusk. But it takes them so long that it eventually becomes night. Now, you need to understand something. Uh, just as cats don't like water, Jews don't like water. I mean, I've never seen a cat just voluntarily go for a swim in my pool. And you wouldn't voluntarily see uh, to use the mic will do anything associated with water. I mean, fishing was, a, uh, to use the micro, uh, like a dirty job. Like it, it was something that you were putting your life at risk. The Phoenicians, they were seafaring people. The Jews, they were land dwellers. Keep in mind, friends, I'm sorry to bore you with history, but like you give your kids swim lessons, that's a relatively new thing. Like it's last 100 years. Most people on the face of the planet forever do not know how to swim. They sink. So here these guys are out in the middle of the sea. It is dark. They are alone, and I don't know about you, have you ever been out on a boat in the dark? It's kind of an eerie experience to me. I don't, I'll swim anywhere, almost. But I do not want to get in a dark body of water. There's just something psychologically about like, all right, it could get me, whatever it is. Maybe it's watching Jaws as a kid or something that messed me up. But either way, it's a, kind of an ominous situation, but it gets worse because the storm appears. And, and it's a Florida. Oh, storms. We just had one, you know, yesterday evening. You know, they just kind of happen. It's a Florida thing. They don't happen here like they do there. Fascinating. Never been there. Uh, but I have heard and I have researched thoroughly that the Sea of Galilee is particularly prone to some of the most violent storms in the world. It lies 600 feet below sea level. And what happens is cool air from the southeastern tablelands rushes in to displace the warm, moist air over the lake, churning up the water in a violent squall. I'm quoting there. In fact, I'm told that even today, friends, like, like, Right now, power boats are to remain docked when these storms come. Like it's just the rule of the Sea of Galilee. How much more threatening would this scenario have been for Jesus' little band of disciples and their forward? And so here's the deal they push forward, they're straining for their very lives. The sea to them represents the ultimate threat to their safety. I mean, the ancient conception of the sea was that it was associated with chaos and evil and untamable forces within the natural or spiritual world. I mean, here it is. They are, are subject to a great threat. And as we read verse 19 again, I want you to remember something because things get from bad to worse. Here they are struggling for their lives, and then all of the sudden they see this entity on the water. Now, you know in verse 19 that it's Jesus because it says when Jesus came. But think about it. John is writing from the perspective of the omniscient narrator. He knows that it's Jesus. The next verse makes it clear that they did not know it was Jesus. 
All right, so I need you, okay, last, last exercise of imagination. Think with me for a second. It's dark. There's no spot. It's stormy. That means there's no moonlight. There's no spotlight. How can they see anything on the face of the water? Lightning. As the lightning flashes, they see an entity 40 feet away, and it's dark. 30 seconds go by. Lightning flashes again, and that entity (laughs) is now only 20 feet away. I mean, have you ever seen those strobe lights in a, in a haunted house? Like when they're on really slow? I mean, that's what it's like. It's a strobe light. And Jesus, they don't know who he is, just shows up closer and closer and closer. And they think that the spirit of the sea itself is going to take them. I mean, it is a harrowing experience until Jesus speaks. And he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Friends, of course they knew his voice, they would recognize that he was the one who was walking on top of this water, and I want you to get the the mental picture, please. The same Jesus who just fed 20,000 plus people is now trampling over their greatest human threat. It is literally under his feet. And I don't want to milk this too much, but I can't ignore it. Do you know what the Greek text is for it is I? Ego eimi. Translated, I am. It's a perfectly good designation to say, it is I. But it is also the same word that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe the covenant in praise of Jesus introduces himself as the self-existent one, the one that Mitch led us in praise of this morning. Yahweh, the one who had delivered them through the entire exodus, the one who gave them bread when they needed it, and the one who dominated the sea on their behalf to effect their final deliverance from Pharaoh. This is the one. I don't have time, but you may have the inclination that over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, the I Am, is presented as the one who tramples the sea. Job 38, 8 through 11. Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4, and 10 and 11. Psalm 65, verses 5 to 7. Psalm 89, verse 9, Psalm 107, 23 to 32. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the I am is presented as the one who can conquer their greatest human threat, the sea. That untamable force that would be out to get them. He dominates. They were glad. And notice how their attitude changes in verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And here's something for you to debate over lunch. Ready for these last few words? And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Um, That can mean one of two things. It can mean that he steps on the boat and it teleports to the, the location. Or it could mean that they were so energized that like 
they were able to get there, you know, the storm is calmed, and they're just take off, and it's as if they were immediately there. I don't know. You can argue that with your friends and family. But here's what I do know. Jesus lorded over their human limits. He not only overcame the human limit of supply, he overcame the human limit of safety. And this stuns them. His defiance of death-designating human deficiencies demonstrates his deity. His defiance of death-designating human deficiencies demonstrates definitively his deity. And as we see him lording over our human limits, what it should produce within our hearts is longing. Longing. Friends, when I say I want you to be stunned, I also have prayed that you would be satisfied. The truth of the matter is that every one of us feel a sense of longing in our hearts. We know that there are needs. Some of them are biological. Some of them are emotional, psychological. We recognize the limits. We know that there's, there's problems. Maybe you remember um, from an old like, class that you had taken in high school or college that there was even one psychologist in the, in the 1930s, Abraham Maslow, who came up with a whole pyramid of needs to talk about all the different things that we need. And at the bottom of it, there's air and earthy things, and at the top are the more like internal things. I mean, think about it. There's air and food and water and shelter and sleep and clothing. I mean, like we need that. That's, that's fundamental. But at the same time, we need respect and esteem and security and resources and family and connection. And that, like we need all these things. And th- the point of a passage like this is Jesus meets every one of those needs. Like any human need that you have, anything that you need to stay alive and to thrive is sourced in Him. I, uh, you guys know I'm a reader. Seems like there's always like a book of the month that's just like captivating my attention. And you normally hear whatever the book of the month is, whether I call it that or not. So just FYI, the book of the month for me, it's called Quiet. The power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. I need that. (laughs) Hey, hey, our Susan Cain, it's a New York Times bestselling book, and in it she is actually trying to say, hey, our culture values the extrovert, the outgoing, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, We need to learn to value the people who are quieter. They make great contributions to the world society, and even she has a chapter on church. Interesting. It's good. But one of the things that that she's kind of noted that I thought was... I think it's true. Anecdotally, I can't, ex- I can't prove this with an experiment, but most people could be divided into two categories. Not introvert, extrovert. That's the classic, of course. But here's another. Some people are, they have a high degree of reward sensitivity. They want to win. And some people, they are threat averse. They just don't want to lose. You know what I'm saying? So you've got one group of people that's like, protect, protect, protect. I don't want to die, you know, like that kind of, you need people like that on your team. But at the same time, you want people who are like, let's conquer the next hill. Let's win. Let's push for the next goal. There's, there's the, the proactive, like I see here in John, reactive, let's stay safe. And as I've contemplated that, especially in light of what I see here in John, I've just noticed that Jesus satisfies both. 
He gives you abundance of bread, everything which you need. He satisfies your soul. Like whatever reward you crave, whatever it is you think you need to add, He's got it. And whatever threat you feel, He overcomes it. Which leads to a very important point, and we're done. Though all will be satisfied in Jesus, though all safety is in Him, the text, friends, I can't say this earnestly enough, the text actually invites you to do something else, and that is to contemplate, to contemplate who this Jesus is, what He has come to do, and how you should respond to Him. Let me tell you why. I'm just going to leave a cliffhanger. And frankly, if you want the answer, I'm going to trust that you can read on your own this afternoon the rest of the chapter. But I don't have to preach it all today. I've already told you that. But here's the deal. You need to be able to answer a really hard question because if you're here today and you're like, yes, Jesus will get me everything I want, everything I need. He's going to eliminate all my threats. You still might miss Jesus. Let me tell you why. The hint is that when those Jewish people thought that of Jesus, what did he do? He ran away from them. I say contemplate, think. Why on God's green earth would Jesus run from a group of people that want him to be their ruler and provider? Here's your hint. Because they limited his rule and provision to only the areas that they themselves contemplate. Three questions to contemplate. Who is he? What kind of, of person are we talking about here? Friends, this is no mere genie. This is no mere life enhancer. The text has presented him as the sovereign God of the Scriptures, who not only provides for his people, but rules over them. This same Jesus would conquer the greatest need by defeating death itself. I mean, he would die on the cross on behalf of all those who had sinned, against him who would believe, and he would rise again from the dead, showing that he had absolute mastery over our greatest enemy, death itself. And yet, here's the crazy thing. He only offers that life to those who place their faith in him. And you're like, okay, yes, great, awesome. Intellectual assent to Jesus. I've seen that over and over again. I agree. But that's not saving faith. We've seen that over and over again in the book of John. If you are here today and you're saying, yes, I know that Jesus walked on the planet 2,000 years ago. Amen. Not enough. Saving faith is an acknowledgement that Jesus is not just a rescuer and a provider, but he is a ruler. He is a president. I love the acronym faith. You need to express faith in Jesus. Are you ready for it? You can remember this on your own. You don't even have to write it down. Here's saving faith. Forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. If you doubt my interpretation, read the rest of John 6 and then give me a call. No kidding, my number's in the directory. 
Who is he? What has he come to do? Yeah, he's going to meet physical needs. He's going to eliminate human threat. For resurrection, he's not just eliminating threats in this life. He is doing it for the life to come. He is setting people up for resurrection life, what the Bible calls eternal life. I'm not saying that the needs here and now don't matter. I'm saying that he's doing something over and above that. And if you don't care about the over and above, the beyond, you may not actually be enjoying his true rule and reign rescue. What has he come to do? That's a, to do. That is a question you must answer. And he explains it in the rest of this chapter. And then the last one is, how do we respond? How do we respond? What does it look like for us to be one of his learners? If he's inviting people into his discipleship community, if he's going to provide for them, what will it look like? Well, I love the way one old uh, divine said it. Uh, to follow Jesus is an arduous good. It is an arduous good. Uh, in the book of Mark, he explains it this way, take up your cross and follow me. Friends, to, to follow Jesus is free. It is always joining their army. It don't cost you a dime. You don't have to go through a single religious rite or ceremony. It is free, but so is joining their army. Those who will follow Jesus will be willing to obey him and live for him in every way that he calls. So Justin, that sounds awful high. It is high, it is holy, and guess what? You will fail. But he provides for even that. He provides for that too. And, and so we end where we began. This picture of Christ's lordship over all limits is to invite us to stunned contemplation of who he is and what he's done. Let us adore him, contemplate him, and consider what it looks like or would look like for us to follow him. I want to have you bow your heads and close your eyes, please. And this is of silence to contemplate who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and whether or not you have responded. At this